I don't even understand the technology of the so that's rolling. I'm just going to flip that down here. Okay. And this can, should probably go yep. right around there. Yeah. I'm going to bring that cable underneath here just so it's not rubbing. But yep. Good idea. I'll get to go. Okay. And with this here, all I need to do... That top one is the switch. Right there. So now that's on. Hello, hello. And that's off. Okay. I'll try to remember. Okay. Oh no, what, what, what did I do with, oh, did I leave it in the car, my, my telephone? I better make sure it's not in the car. I, I thought I had it on me. My, my telephone. Oh, I hope I left it at home rather than, or, or in the car. Here. I want to check, I want to check in the car just in case. Thanks. <laughs> there's, there's Linda. That's, you're not. Hey, Kathy. Did you, did you turn that off before you went to the restroom? Good morning. Left the phone in the car. Oh, no, not in the car. At home. So someone's going to have to be in my timer. Try to pay attention. <sighs> Don't like looking at the clock. That's why I like having a timer. Beep, beep, let me know something. It's terrible. How are you doing there, Carol? Yes, I am. Yeah. I'm just afraid of getting shocked. <laughs> it's terrible. Remember, turn this rascal on in a little bit. Pardon me? Oh, I'll get him out of here. I'll say sit down and join us for class. Just sit down and join us for class. Good morning. I've been doing very well, thank you. Very well. Your arm's full, huh, Abby? How are you? You're fine. 
That's fine. We'll get him going. Okay. Pardon me? Oh, all the girls are doing great. Had them all over um, this week. Uh, one of them had to leave, uh, but had all my three girls with me this week. So it was really, really nice to see them all. Yeah. Yeah, it was a blessing. Always good to see the girls. Michael couldn't. I'll make an announcement in the class. Michael didn't hear. His friend of his passed away. Oh, you know, so he, so he, so he flew out today. To, uh, so he's going to be conducting the funeral. Oh. Friend for over for thirty years. Oh, yeah. Know. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're teaching. Me you're too. Me too. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Almost there. Oh yeah. Well, they're starting to filter out now, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah we'll, we'll get them out of here. There you go. <laughs> oh no, he just tell them, tell them to sit on down there. Just, Sit on down in the pew and join class. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. He reminds me of our of our uh, little hound dog. He he's a herding dog. He's herding. I'll, I'll, nip, I'll nip nip those heels of yours. Yeah, well, all he's, all he's got to do. Hey, look at this shirt. Get out of my way, man. Well, I think I just lost another <laughs> nine friends. But hey. <laughs> yeah. I had a few too many anyway, didn't you? I had to kind of have to filter them down. Okay. Where did where did where did Trent go? Okay, where's Trent? There he is. All right. No, I didn't run out on you. I know you didn't. Morning. Welcome to class this morning. Y'all are spread out. Everybody's supposed to be in one section. We get our uh, class roll started around. If you have any prayer requests, write them down somewhere on there or get them to me on an index card or a piece of paper or send me a text or whatever because if you don't, I'll forget every one of them and they won't make it out in the prayers this week. Uh, a few quick announcements. Uh, uh, they have fusion coming up. Fusion doesn't apply to us. We're too old to go to that. Uh, <laughs> We do have a lot of things going on this summer. We're glad for the graduates. I have known several of them. Known several of them since they were born. But, uh, I found out after church was over that Whit wasn't here. But Philip is covering for us this morning, so we're covered on class time. Uh, Mr. Charlie Chisholm has been in Trust Point Hospital in Murfreesboro recovering from what they think was a stroke, but he didn't have any stroke indicator when they did all the tests they didn't have any indicators but he's doing better and he went home Wednesday and I saw him Wednesday he's looking pretty good Chuck said he just needs to get up and move around a little more so we just need to keep praying for Charlie and Miss Helen is taking care of him uh, Miss Kathy Joe had successful surgery on Monday and we hope she doesn't overdo again <laughs> we did it yesterday so we need to keep her in our prayers uh, what was that Scotty trying to keep everything Keep everything from not falling out. Uh, somebody else told me this morning it's something I had to. Somebody we need to throw on the prayer sheet. I don't know who. Like I said, get it in writing or I'll forget all about it. 
Uh, we do need to wish a happy birthday to Miss Sandra Ladd, whose birthday is this week. She's celebrating the anniversary of her 29th birthday. <laughs> Miss Linda's birthday is the same day. All right. Birthday. I am not going to ask who's older because I don't want to get a book thrown at me this morning. <coughs> but they're they're both just almost my age, but not quite. So I might be a little bit older. <coughs> oh, Miss Sue's. Uh, that's I'm looking at Miss Sue. Thank you, uh, Miss Sue and Miss Judy's nephew, who's on the fire firefighter down in Franklin, had fallen from a height of about 29 feet. And it did a bunch of damage to his body, but he is getting better and recovering pretty quickly. So we're thankful for that. Anybody else I got to mention? Uh, William's brother Wayne had uh, radiation for the the brain lesions, and everything is. But he just needs to learn to walk. So we need to get him better walking. So. Okay. Blood clot in his lung. Okay. Rick Beals. Remind me of that or I'll forget to put him on the prayer sheet. Uh, my stepmother, who had successful hip surgery a few weeks ago after being without a hip for eight and a half months, has had several complications, and she had, I think, eight blood clots in her leg. Oh, no. So they've gotten some of that taken care of. She's doing better. She's out walking. They went to her grandson's uh, soccer game yesterday, so they are getting better. It's just been a long road for her, so if y'all just keep her in your prayers as well. Anybody else? Christy or Christine? Christine? Christine, that's your roommate? Okay. So we'll need to remember them. Yes, Miss Judy. Carly Neal, a teenager down in Knowlesville, has been, he's a friend of my grandson, and he's been put on a liver transplant. Mm -hmm. Please write that down because I will not remember that at all. Uh, yes, Miss Sandra? For your son Randy, yes. We've got him on the prayer sheet. We need to keep remembering to pray for him. Is he getting any better or not getting any better? Okay. Let's have a quick word of prayer. I've got, I'm only three minutes over, Philip, but I think you've no, had enough time. You're good. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful to you for our opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for listening to our prayers and answering them. Thank you for these uh, young people that graduated this morning. Father, we pray that you will watch, walk, over, walk with them, watch over them as they go forward in their, their plans in life. Father, help us to be encouraging to them, to be mentors, to, to pray for them and lift them and their families up in this time of transition. Father, for those that were mentioned this morning, we ask that you just watch over them and, and uh, touch their bodies, provide their families with what they need. Father, help us to be your hands and feet here to do what we can to help them. Father, thank you for listening to our prayers. Please watch over us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Is this thing actually on? Yes, it is? Okay, good. Okay, good, good, good. Well, you have me today instead of Michael. Uh, uh, Michael texted me a couple of days ago, um, and he let me know that a dear friend of his that he's known for at least 30 years had passed away, and he was asked to conduct the funeral. So Michael flew out this morning, and he will be conducting the funeral. He also wanted me to say that he has his son Shane over at his house taking care of Debbie. So she is being well taken care of as well. He's not neglecting his wife. So I just wanted you all to know that. Or he wanted you to know that. All right. Um, the plan today is to get through chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation. Uh, that was Michael's plan originally. Uh, the other plan actually was where I would be taking chapters 10 and 11 over the next two weeks. So I'll see if that still happens or not. Uh, hopefully it will, and we will find out. But the objective today is to get through chapters 8 and 9. But what I'd like also to do is to uh, provide a little bit of background on some things so you'll 
um, have a, a little bit better grasp as far as what John is actually saying. I believe the audience that he's writing this to of the first century, uh, they were pretty clear on what John was saying. I think John was being very clear. He was writing in what we call symbolic or apocalyptic language. Another way of wording it actually would be poetic. In the Old Testament, uh, many of the prophets wrote in a more of a poetic form, a sensational form explaining uh, God's greatness or when God is uh, having judgments on people, his own people or the enemies of God. And so we'll look at a few of those texts as well because much of what you find in the book of Revelation can be rooted, the, the symbols, in the Old Testament something that our first century brothers and sisters were probably much more acquainted with than what we are. So they would not have had as much struggle, although they would not nearly have been as literate as we are today, or even have as much information around us as today. They probably had a better grasp as far as what John was writing um, than what we even do today. And it's because of our lack of familiarity of the Old Testament that sometimes some of these texts can become very difficult when in fact it, it was never meant to be. Not, I wouldn't say everything in the book of Revelation, but much of it was not intended to be understood or interpreted as being literal. But it was a rather a poetic way of the writer describing something that God is doing. And many times when he was punishing people, you will, will, will read us a few texts in the Old Testament today. Of, it's a very sensational thing that's going on. It doesn't change the fact that God is doing this and God is having it done. But the fact is, though, there, the language that is used is not something that we're really accustomed to. So we're sometimes trying to figure out the details. And that's something that John wasn't even concerned about. And neither were his readers. But I don't want to say that everyone has understood it simply because ever since even the second century, people have been debating this about various uh, interpretations of the book. But I think, by and large, the bulk of it is rooted in the Old Testament. Our audience in the first century understood that. And so when John was writing this, it made sense. And ultimately, as Michael has been saying, it's victory. God is going to take care of his people. He has done that all the time. He has just given you another example of that. And during a time of great persecution and suffering, which was going on in the first century, he's letting them know, God's there with them. They are not going to be uh, overtaken by the enemy. God is in control. And that is what he wants them to know. And that also is what, what, what he wants us to know too. So our vir virtual or our enemy may, may not be Rome, but we have our other enemies that we're facing today too. And we can apply the same principles and thought that God will take care of them. We don't have to, to worry about it. We, as long as we trust in him. So that's really what we're lo looking at today. And so uh, let's go with there. If you'll turn over to Revelation chapter 8. And just say just a few words also about this. This is the second series of, of, um, of items. Like the first one were the seals. Then now the trumpets. And then it's going to be the bowls in chapter 16. Um, I believe they are. They can be I believe interpreted as being different. Um, times of judgment that God is going to place upon the enemies of God. But I believe, you know, it all is still showing that God is the one in control doing this. Uh, the first one with the um, uh, seals, again, seals were meant to hide things. When you remove a seal or you break the seal, it's revealing what's going on. And you'll find out that the seventh seal that, is, uh, that happens in chapter 8, actually it says now we have the seven trumpets. The whole point is though, once the seventh seal is broken, that is really talking about the rest of the book, in, in essence, because it's all tied up in that last seventh seal, because it's all, it just kind of goes in order like that. But anyway, so we have the seventh seal. I'll just make a few comments about this, then we'll go on to the trumpets. In chapter seven, it says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Likely what that just is sort of referring to is more of a dramatic effect. Uh, some people believe actually this is more almost like a, a pageant or a play that's going on. And this is almost like the drum roll before when God is going to do something. There is silence here. And so we have silence in heaven for about a half hour. He says, I saw seven angels who stand before God with seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar 
He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people and the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke and the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbles, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Again, just a very dramatic scene as far as that God is about to act. And that's certainly uh, what God is going, going to do here. Um, I'll just read just a couple of passages. Let's see if I can find a couple of things uh, here. Let me see here. I just wanted to see if there was something else I wanted to say directly about that. Um, this imagery about these peals of thunder and various things like that, actually, you can actually read about those various things. And, we'll, and I'll have us turn to several different passages in the Old Testament so we can kind of, kind of get a feel of it. Um, when you hear about thunder and peals of thunder, actually, it just is referring to God's uh, majesty and holiness. And actually, something very similar to this happened actually in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, right before the Ten Commandments. Before that occurred, actually, before the Ten Commandments heard, you know, God had all the people gather around there and they were not to touch the mountain and things like this. And so in chapter 19, when they were at Mount Sinai, and beginning in verse uh, 14, it says, Moses had gone down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there will be thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled, and Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke in a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. It's just a very dramatic way of, of uh, describing God's majesty, his holiness, and all of this. Um, and that's all what we're actually seeing, actually, even in the book of Revelation here. Uh, I'll read another passage from uh, Joel in just a moment. Um, yeah, I shall, I'll re read that right now because I think that's also important. Because sometimes when we read certain symbols, we can get caught up in the details when, in fact, that is not the intent at all. Um, I'm going to read from Joel, and uh, I'll just, of course, give you a highlight that it's also quoted in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, maybe that would be a better way of uh, actually introducing this, this type of a symbol. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, we have what? The descending of the Holy Spirit on the apostles there. And so, of course, um, there was a lot of stuff, stuff going on. And then Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. He said, Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you this. Again, that's because they heard people speak in their own languages. There are all these things going on. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now let's listen to what Joel says. Now again, this was the descending of the Spirit, the apostles speaking in various languages to the people. And what Peter says, what that is, it was the fulfillment of what Joel said. And this is what Joel said. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your young, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Your, old, uh, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on your servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on these days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and smoke and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming in the great day of the glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that sounds like the end of the world. It wasn't. It was Acts chapter 2. <laughs> uh, it was the fulfillment of God pouring out the Spirit on his people. That is what Peter says what all this stuff was. The, 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 the sun being darkened, the moon, moon turning to blood, all that. It was the Holy Spirit descending on his people. So it wasn't anything literally in the sky. But it was a way, a poetic way of describing a magnificent divine event. And that's all it was in Acts chapter 2, which was a magnificent thing. But it wasn't the end of the world. It was the Spirit coming to the church. That's all it was. 
So sometimes, again, these, these symbols can get almost out of hand when, in fact, they're not meant to be understood in some sensational way of some cataclysmic thing that's going to happen in the world at the end of times. He says right then, these are the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. He says this is what Joel talked about. So he's, he's letting us know what it is. So then, now it's just a matter of fact, do we believe what Peter said? I take it we do. So that's kind of what he says there. And that's kind of what we see here even with this. When the, when the, when the um, incense and the prayers are going up. The prayers are going up for what? We read that in chapter 6. They were praying that God would take vengeance on the enemies of God. And he said, oh, I will. He will. And so we're seeing God act in these series of visions here. So that's essentially what we're seeing there. Uh, any comments? I want to definitely give, give you time if you have a comment or a question or something like that. I will say one, one other thing, though, about, about this that I believe is also a, a fulfillment um, in, in this regard. In the book of Daniel, it seems that I can't take a class without going back to the book of Daniel sometime or another, but this is a very appropriate one here. And I'll just read a passage just real quick because this was a vision or this was a dream that God gave to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was troubled about it. He wanted to know what it was. Long story short, then Daniel, as a teenager, gave him the interpretation. This was what the dream was. Your majesty... You looked up, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly of um, thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It, was, it struck the statue on the feet of the iron and the clay and it smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces, and it became like chaff of the threshing floor in, in, in the summer. The wind blew them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. No, well, you know, troubled Nebuchadnezzar. What in the world does this mean? Well, Daniel tells us what that means. Essentially, it was four world kingdoms that were going to be coming because he says, you are the, the head of gold, meaning the Babylonian empire. He goes down and he, he addresses Four empires. One, two, three, four. Then it was during the fourth one is when he says this. Again, that's when the rock came. In Daniel 2.44 says, in, those, in the days of those kings, I believe he's talking about there, the, the, the fourth empire, which was the Roman Empire. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another. It will crush those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that was cut out of the mountain, but not made by human hands. It was God's kingdom. So it was a vision about these world kingdoms that, that are going to come, but it still shows that God's kingdom is more powerful. It's going to be this rock. It's going to destroy the statue, and God's kingdom is the one that's going to flourish. That's what the vision meant. And of course, that's the fulfillment of the church of the first century. That's, what that, that's a description of that. Now, did they uh, literally all, were they totally eliminated? No, but it shows a triumphant, glorious church. The bride of Christ is what it shows. That God is always, always in control. So that's all what the vision is really, or even what that uh, dream was about. God's kingdom in the ultimate sense that he's going to be in, in, in control of all this. So that's all what we're re reading here. So now we're going to find the seven trumpets. And as I briefly mentioned last week, I'll try to get into a little bit more deep detail this week. I believe the seven trumpets here, the first four are against, primarily against nature. Again, this is God's judgment on the nations or against the nation or the, uh, or the kingdom that is against his own people. In this case, it would be Rome. So this is a judgment of God against Rome. And the first four are God using nature. Or God is going to impact nature, how he's going to affect him. He's going to affect him in various ways. And so the first thing here, he says, uh, the seven trumpets. And trumpets were usually meant to announce or um, call to attention. You find that uh, even in uh, Joshua chapter 6 with Jericho. When they walked around the city like that, and he says, you know, you'll, you'll blow the trumpet. But when you do it the seventh time, you're going to blow a long blast, scream, and then... Walls come down, and then they're going to be destroyed. 
And that's just what happened as well. So trumpets were meant to call attention, warning that something is happening, and that's just what is happening here. The warning here, it says, the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down to the earth. We are supposed to have the idea, or picture in our mind, the ten, dealing with the ten plagues of Egypt. This was the seventh plague, by the way, there, where hail and fire came, came from heaven. Uh, again, we, again, I believe that God used nature, and he can use nature. He uses nature many, many times. Floods, well, we know the big one, <laughs> Genesis 6 through 9, God used a natural occurrence, a worldwide flood, to wipe away man, mankind. So God uses natural calamity to punish. So here, he is going to use, he's going to attack the land, and there were four aspects of nature, land, sea, fresh water, and heavenly bodies. And the first four trumpets addressed those four very things. He was attacking nature, and this was a way of impacting Rome in a dramatic way that would start to cripple Rome, which in fact it did. Uh, so he says uh, uh, this, this hail and the mixture with fire, blood was going to be hurled down to, to the earth. So the land, in fact, was impacted. He said um, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Again, just a way of describing this. But the idea of a third also deals something that we read in the Old Testament as well. It, doesn't, it, it sort of describes a partial, not a complete judgment, but you know, a large, big judgment, but not complete. And I'll turn over there and I'll read a passage from the book of Ezekiel, which also happened to be written during a time of great distress when, the, when Jerusalem was being overtaken by the Babylonians themselves. But um, Ezekiel was actually taken captive in 597. He was a part of the second ca captivity of that. But, but he wrote his, his book, a very, very symbolic book as well. But in Ezekiel chapter 5, and I'll read this here to you, it'll kind of help it with the idea of a, a third here. In Ezekiel chapter 5, I'll just read a few verses here. Now the Son of Man, um, the Son of Man here refers to Ezekiel. Son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take the scale, the, take the set of the scales and divide up the hair. And in the, uh, in the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind. For I will pursue them with a drawn sword, but I will take a few hairs and tuck them away in folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire, burn them with fire, and a fire will spread from them to all Israel. Essentially, he's dealing with judgment on his own people there. His own people had to be punished because of several hundred years of apostasy. And so God was judging his own people by the means of Nebuchadnezzar. That's, why, well, that's what got Jeremiah in so much hot water, because Jeremiah said surrender to him. The prophets of the day were saying, don't do that. Jeremiah's a traitor. That's why they tried to kill Jer Jeremiah. They thought he was the traitor. No, he was the only one telling them the truth. God is using Nebuchadnezzar to, to punish his own people. But the false prophets of the day didn't believe that. They said resist. Jeremiah said surrender. And Jeremiah was right, of course. So, so the idea of a third is a partial, it's a big judgment, but it's not a complete judgment there. Then he says, and the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea was turned into blood. A third of the, of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were, were destroyed. Again, the idea of a third, meaning a, a good portion of people were being judged. What this is, this is the first one was judgment like on the land, the second one was judgment on the sea. So the, the first one affected the, the crops, which would cause a famine. This one here would actually cause commerce to be halted or at least diminished a lot. If you, if you impact their, their water system, if, if, you, if you turn the water to blood, which it didn't literally turn into blood, but, but, it, but it impacted them dramatically commercially. So financially, it hurt Rome as well. And the thing, I will say again that... Um, Edward Gibbons, who wrote a very famous set of books on the rise and fall of Rome, said there were three main things that caused the fall of the Roman Empire. One was natural calamities. Number two was internal, almost like internal rottenness or 
immorality. And number three, the invasion armies. Those are what the six, the very six trumpets talk about. Those very things, the three things. And we'll get on to the others. But the whole idea is this actually happened to Rome. It took a little bit of time, but it happened to Rome as well. So again, we have this big mountain in there. And all this was, it was to impact commerce pr primarily. And so it was. A third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky. Uh, and a third of it on the rivers and the springs. Uh, the name of the star was, was Wormwood. So it wasn't a real star. It was named Wormwood. A third of the waters turned to bitter. See that third again. A third of the waters turned to bitter, and many of the people died, and the waters had become bitter. Kind of going back again to the idea of the Exodus. The children of Israel came to an area called Mara and had bitter waters, and Moses did what? He plucked, some, plucked a branch, threw it in there, and made the waters drinkable. But in this case, the waters became bitter, contaminated, and people had died from it. So again, it, it's, it's sort of reminiscent of what happened to the plagues of Egypt. And that was to bring um, the, uh, Egypt to his knees. And it did. Boy, did it ever bring them to their knees. And so it was also God showing his own glory. The one thing that the Exodus showed as well. Uh, there was a reason behind the plagues. There was a specific reason behind it. So we have here uh, the third uh, of all the fresh waters. So now we have the fresh waters being Im impacted here. Um, and then it says a fourth angel sounded his trumpet. Yes. Wormwood, wormwood is, is, it's like a poison. Okay. Um, it's like a poison, and so basically the waters are going to be contaminated. You know, it'll, it get, uh, in, in the days of, uh, of the Exodus, the children of Israel came up to water, and they wanted to drink water because they were complaining about water. So they went up to Marah, and they were trying to get water, and the water was bitter. Moses healed the water with a branch. So this is almost like the antithesis of that, the very opposite of that. God is poisoning, or not poisoning, but contaminating the waters so it causes death. Again, just another judgment on Rome. Again, was there literally a thing that went into the waters that did that? No. It, 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 it wasn't meant to be understood that way. It has been showing that God is punishing this, this nation by using various things, natural calamity, to hurt it. And it did. Dramatically, when it talks about the, like, uh, the mountains going into the sea like this, that volcanoes, let me tell you, the first century was loaded with them. And they were very, very familiar with that. So if this book was written after 79 AD, which I don't think it was, but even if it was, they were very familiar with Vesuvius. They were very familiar with mountains and what they could do, the damage. God uses natural calamities many times to punish nations. That's not an uncommon thing at all. It doesn't have to be interpreted that something literally did that. Well, just like there wasn't a star. You know, when they, you know, an average star is what? The size of the sun. Well, that's probably thousands of times bigger than the earth. You, know, you don't have those fall into the earth. But, you know, there could be meteorites that look like stars. You know, and some people actually believe in the Exodus what the hail and fire stones did because it was a fire. It wasn't just of uh, ice. It was with fire coming down from the sky. Some people believe that was a meteorite shower that came down. And not little ones, big ones. So, but the whole point is God uses natural calamities. Well, you know, God does that to nations. He humbles nations by natural calamities. That, now, I'm not to saying this. Now, one thing I don't want you to think, that every time there's a natural calamity, that that's God is, oh, I'm pun punishing them. Not all calamity is due, is due to that. It, it isn't. But God does use natural calamity to punish people. He uses internal decay. I mean, I think that has been used uh, in the United States greatly. Many times. Moral de decadence of what's going on. I mean, there's a, even, there's a place that's, you know, people almost say with a big smile, there is a city in the, in the United States called Sin City. Las Vegas. It's called Sin City. It's going to be the end of us in this country, but God, God will do this to judge nations. As I said before, he's, he judges people in eternity, but nations in time. Because a nation cannot stand before God in eternity and be judged, but he can be judged on earth. And that's just what God does. He brings them to their knees. He's always done that. And he always will. He did it to his own people. 
But again, but it wasn't just to punish. We need to remember that. Because at the end of chapter 9, as I mentioned last week, it was the whole thing it says here, and I, 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 I will re read this here. And let's see. Uh, this was after the, the sixth uh, um, uh, trumpet. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed in these plagues did not, still did not repent at the work of their hands. Nor, verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. God was bringing this on this so people will repent. But some people are so hard-hearted, they won't. But God wants people to repent. And sometimes he will bring things in people's lives to encourage them to repent. It's because God loves them. As I was telling uh, one of my girls just either this morning or yesterday, God loves Hitler as much as he loves you. He loves Saddam Hussein as much as he loves you. He doesn't relish on anyone losing their life and going to hell. The God we serve is the God who loves. And one reason for God's delay, even Peter tells us this, why all this delay? Because he wants people to repent and come to him. He loves humanity. That's why he came in the first place. He isn't just doing it just to punish. He does it to bring people to him. There's a consequence if they don't. But our God is a lover of humanity. He has always been that way. And this is just another example. God wants people to repent. But it's, up, but it's their choice. Yes, Bonnie. Well, true. Um, uh, we do know, of course, that the church was scattered very early on. They went on. So um, I, would not, I would not say necessarily Jewish Christians. However, though, the scriptures that the early Christians, whether Jewish, of course, Jewish would have been much more familiar with them than, than the Gentile Christians, and I would agree with that. But the, but the Bible of the first century was the Old Testament. That was the Bible. You know, if Paul were up here in the first century, uh, he, he, he would have out the Old Testament. You know, he, he probably would be a little bit surprised that the New Testament even made it in there because uh, he knew that he was writing things that, that, that were inspiration. But he, he probably didn't know they were Scripture. He probably didn't know that they would be kept as Scripture. But so God's people would have had lesson after lesson after lesson rooted in the Old Testament, and that's what they would have been very, very familiar with. But there would have been Jewish people obviously impacted as well as the Gentile Christians who would have been using the Old Testament and learning of that and so I don't think this would have been unfamiliar territory to any of them, Jewish or Gentile. But Jews probably would have understood it better because it actually happened to them in their own, in, the, in, the, in their past. So, so the first four here impacted, uh, it, God was using nature. And then we have um, an eagle. It says, I watched and I saw and I heard an eagle was flying in midair and was calling out with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe. Well, again, not literal. Uh, eagles don't say woe. They, they, they don't do that. But eagles were also almost a symbol of like, almost like a, a bad omen. So something scary is going to happen. You know, when you see these big things circling around there and this eagle out there screaming woe, three woes meant there are three more things coming, you know, like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's bad. And so this eagle is out there saying woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast to be sounded and by the other three angels. So he's warning the people this is what's going to happen. So let me see if there's anything else right here I wanted to specifically say. Uh, probably not. Okay, let's see what time we got here. Okay. Don't have my clock, so I'm going to really try, try to watch this. All right, there we go. All right, here we go. Fifth angel. Fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke arose from it like smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and the skies were darkened by the smoke of the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor the plant or the tree, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
And they were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. And during those days, the people will seek death who will not find it. They will long to die, but the death will elude them. I'll just stop there for a moment. Another way of just describing, actually what some people really believe, this is really a way of describing um, internal and immoral the decay of the nation here. And so I'll describe just a couple of things which I, I believe would be a correct uh, way of, of, of viewing this. Uh, this, it wasn't a literal star. Uh, many, many scholars, probably not everyone, but most people would, would probably argue uh, that the star that fell here was referring to Satan. Because later it says in uh, verse 11, um, talking about this, uh, the, about, about all these locusts and stuff, uh, he says, uh, they had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon, that is destroyer. So, the, so the, the one in charge of all this stuff is that. You know, you wonder, well, why is Satan do, doing this? Well, it, it, it's just showing the, the, the evilness. And I think what we're actually describing, what we're seeing here is that it's like Satan is now, in a sense, cast out of heaven he's not going to be in god's presence and he comes down here here to the earth he says he comes down and he has the key of the abyss uh, abyss um without getting into too much detail it's like a bottomless pit some people say you know it's a uh, it re represents evil e evilness which i think it certainly does here and um, um but this this but this abyss is there and, and he opened up the abyss and smoke arose and smoke from this giant giant furnace the sun and the sky were darkened. Some people by the smoke, but then later it seems like it's locusts. So it could very well have been a locust plague that God utilizes here. Other people would view this smoke as representing, you know, it hides the sun, meaning it's darkness, it's evil, it's wickedness. And so when you start to remove the light and spirituality and good things from the world, all you're going to get is darkness. So it may not refer, you know, I don't believe it's referring to something literal in that sense, but in the sense that evilness, there's a lot, you know, you know, you know we might think that Satan just is, is after us. No, there, there's a cloud of evilness over, over the world. Absolutely. And, it, and the immoral decay and all this sort of stuff, Satan's behind that. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail and try to give him too much power because he doesn't have it. He's never, he's never had it. Um, God is, there's never been a, a contest between the two in that sense. Uh, Satan has always been, been on a leash, and he's not that tough when you look at God and him. It's never been, been that way. But anyway, um, but the way it's described here is that it says the sun, the sky are darkened. Again, this, all this sensationalism. But some people believe actually all this could refer to is simply a locust plague. And God did use locusts. If you want to read about an interesting locust plague, you can read about that in chapter 2 of Joel as well. And I wish we had the time really to read a lot through there. But read Joel 2, and it talks about the God uses the locust. But now, but these are not, again, but are these literal locusts? Mm. Actually, they're probably not locusts. Actually, the darkness and the locusts probably represent evil because it describes the locust. Um, news, newsflash, locusts don't look like this. <laughs> they don't. Uh, because, because it describes them. It describes them. It says, uh, and the locusts look like horses. Well, locusts don't look like horses. Um, um, prepared for battle. But, but God uses them. God can use a locust, and he has used locust plagues in the, old, in the Old Testament on a number of occasions. And he says, on their heads wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resemble human faces. Maybe saying that this was intelligence, possibly. Again, we're not dealing with a uh, literal locust in that sense. They're, they don't look like horses. They don't have human char characteristics. Their teeth were like, uh, or their hair was like woman's hair. Boy, these are freaky looking locusts then, aren't they? Uh, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Again, just a way of describing a vicious enemy here. Uh, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. And their tails were stingers like scorpions, and their tails had the power to torment people for five months. You wonder why, why five months? Could be that that's about the typical length of a locust plague. 
So the life of a lo locust is about five months on these plagues. So it, it may be simply describing a locust plague, or it could also be describing the idea of these, these locusts represent the idea of evilness that is over, over Rome and internal decay, because Rome did have a lot of internal decay, very, very corrupt rulers, uh, a lot of immorality going on and like that. And that was, the end, again, just another judgment that God used against the enemies of God to bring them to their knees. That's all he is doing, and God is very, very successful at doing that. Uh, then let's see, what else do I want to say about that? Okay, yeah, we should be able to, to get to a little bit more. Um, and they had a king over them, the king of the abyss, uh, whose name in Hebrew is uh, Abaddon, and Greek Apollyon means destroyer. And a lot of people do believe this actually uh, refers to Satan, and likely it, it does refer to Satan. Now, it's interesting here. We think if everything is in the future, which I don't, but read what verse 12 says. The first woe is past, and the other two woes are yet to come. So it's like, it's already over. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, but, but the whole idea, though, it, uh, he says it's over. Now we have the sixth trumpet. Trumpet sounds. I heard a voice coming down from the four horns of the golden altar that is before, the, uh, that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour. Actually, I think that may even go back to chapter uh, 7 where it says, um, And I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, chapter 7, verse 1, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent the wind from blowing on any of the land or the sea or on any tree. Winds are, in many times in the Old Testament, used as judgments of God. So it's like the angels are holding back these judgments of God, and there was a reason why the angels were supposed to hold them. He tells you right here. He says, um, I saw another angel coming down from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Kind of gives you back that idea, the land and the sea. Um, don't harm the land and the sea of the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. In other words, we got to protect them. So this is God's way of protecting his own people so that they, so they will not be impacted. Um, again, this does not mean really that None of them w w would die. Because actually this imagery comes from the book of Ezekiel as well. So let's just take, again, a real quick gander at that, and then we'll uh, try to get back to this last uh, seal here. I mean, sorry, this last uh, trumpet. Uh, but you can find, again, the idea of the mark in chapter 9 of Ezekiel. Again, this is just imagery be being used. He says, I heard them uh, call out in a loud voice, Bring, the, bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city. See, the idea of judging the city. Um, and each one with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces the north, uh, etc. Verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim. See, God's glory was over the cherubim. And before God would destroy the temple, he had to remove it. So God, left his, God removed his glory from the temple, then he could destroy it. That's what happened. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in the linen who had, who had a writing kit on his side, and he said to them, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. So mark those who are faithful to God. Mark them. And as I listened, um, he said, Follow through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion, slaughter the old and the young, all of them. Um, but do not touch anyone who has the mark, beginning at my sanctuary. Um, most scholars would say what this mark was, well, probably wasn't a literal mark, but the mark was likely was the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet was, was the Tav. In old Hebrew, not, not in more, more modern script, when I mean modern uh, uh, from days of maybe a couple thousand years ago, it looks different. But in the older Hebrew script, do you know what the mark looked like? An X. X marks the spot. So you're supposed to mark, mark them. And that was with the letter Tav, so they would be the ones protected. Again, the imagery is very similar to what happened in the days of the Exodus, 
What were the children of Israel supposed to do right before they came out of Egypt with the blood? To prevent the death angel from killing the firstborn, what were they supposed to do? Take the blood, put over the, 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 the lintel of the house. And what was it supposed to do? Prevent the death angel from killing the firstborn. That was their mark, the blood. So when the death angel saw the blood, and I don't believe that's by accident, I think that is highly symbolic of re referring to what Jesus does for us. Because when God sees us, all he sees is the blood on us. That's why we can be guiltless before God, not held accountable for our sins, because we have the mark. So I, I think all that is very, very symbolic. But in Ezekiel's day, the people were to be marked and they were to be protected. But the fact is, though, a lot of them still died, though. That did not change. I think that's going to be found in Ezekiel 23. Let me see if that's it. Then we'll, then we'll go on. Um, it was just a term to help people think that they were going to be... Uh, let's see. Uh, 67. Yeah. I wish I had the time to go into more on this. But the whole point is, though, um, uh, even though they were, they were protected, the thing is, though, still some of the faithful died. They did. But it, but it was God's way of saying, I'm going to watch over you also. Really, the seal was to let them know, and the mark was to let them know that you are not being punished. People might suffer, but it's not because God is punishing you. It's because you, are, you, know, you live in an environment, you happen to have consequences of that. You just do. And, and we, we, we experience that too. We not be, may not be guilty of something, but we have to endure the, the suffering, the consequences of sin around us. We still do. All, every day. Every day that happens to us. Yes, Bonnie. Good point. Yeah, yeah. I think that just re reinforces that. Yes, and but you know, but but even the the point even above that is the whole reason why God was delaying. He wants people to repent. God doesn't relish on killing people. Don't ever get the idea that God is, oh, I can't wait to destroy these people. Our God doesn't think like that. That's not the God we serve. The God that we serve was willing to hang on the cross and give his life for us. Greater love has no one than to give his life. And as John 10, he said, no one takes my life. I give it. They, in one sense, they didn't kill Jesus. He gave his life. It was to remit all of our sins. And I'll tell you, the story is much, much bigger than what we can ever imagine what God has done for us. It's amazing. But thank you, Bonnie. Yes, I think that's, but that, that, that's a good point in chapter 6. His point was, more of you have got to die. I'm not done yet. There is going to be delay. But there is going to be a point in the interlude in chapters 10 and 11. 10 verse 6 says, no more delay. <laughs> So, so God does act, but, uh, but the point is, though, um, not all suffering is due to punishment of God, because it is not. It is not at all. But God does punish people. Okay, the sixth seal, then it says, uh, again, the, 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 the angels were holding the, the, this back, but now it says, now the four angels have been ready to, and been kept for the hour and the day, the month and the year, they were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. 200 million people. Realistically, there probably wasn't 200 million people on the earth. So the idea is this is a big, massive army. But I believe what he's actually describing here is an invading army against Rome. God used invading armies to destroy Rome. And there are a number of scholars that, that I believe rightfully believe what this is. It's a depiction of Parthians. Uh, kind of goes back to six where it talked about the first horseman on the white horse. He, was, he, was, he had a bow. That was the favorite weapon of the Parthians. And the Parthians were, you think, well, why, why them? They were the only enemy that Rome did not defeat. The only enemy. So this is like a vision here of this invading army, of these Parthian armies. An overwhelming number that you can't even imagine. They're going to come and they're going to judge Rome. Did it literally happen? Of course not. But there were invading armies that did, that fought Rome, Parthians being one of them as well. So, 
So it was this massive army. And I saw the horse and the riders in my vision looked up, and their breastplates were fiery red, blue, and yellow surface. Their heads of the horses resembled heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. Well, you know, that doesn't really happen. But, what, but it's just in a very intimidating vision as far as how God uses outside forces to punish people, because that's what he was doing. He was using this, this plague, and like the other ones, to punish a nation, to cause them to repent. Sometimes he uses merely words. Sometimes he uses something else. In the case of words, is in the case of Jonah. Jonah was told to go to, to, go to Nineveh. Didn't want to go. And we know why. He tells us in chapter 4, verse 2 of Jonah. He didn't want to go because he didn't want him forgiven. He knew if he preached to him that God would forgive him, and he didn't want him forgiven. But, uh, but the, the only message was this. He had eight words, at least in English. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was the whole, whole message. And he repented. Oh, the very thing that he hated. And so he sulks about that in chapter 4. And he says, didn't I say, didn't, isn't this why I didn't want to tell him in the first place? Because I knew that you'd forgive him. Um, Jonah had a hard time with God forgiving the enemies of God's people. And so, and sometimes I think we do too, to some degree. So, so this is all what's happening is, I believe all what's happening here is that, uh, that this was just another plague. This was external uh, forces going to judge Rome. Um, and they did that over a n- number of years. And the rest of mankind, again, who were not killed, they, they were there to, and it says, to kill a third of mankind. Well, you know, you think you'd hear about that through, through various historians that that actually happened. It, it, it didn't. But the fact is, though, Rome was destroyed. Rome was never triumphant over Christianity. It never was. And this is just an example of what God used to take care of Rome. So the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues, uh, by the work of their hands, they didn't stop worshiping demons and idols and gold and silver and bronze and gold and wood. He wanted them to repent, but they refused. You know, that should be a warning to us sometimes. God wants us, I I understand that we're not the lost, but God does want us to repent and to change, to be better for him. And God will use things in our life. That doesn't mean everything. And let, you know, let's be very careful not to say, oh, this was a judgment of God and not like this. We don't all, always know. But God can and he has used these things in the past to judge people. And, uh, but ultimately, in the end, what he wants is you to turn to him because God adores you. He loves you and he wants you to be with him. But he will deal with sin because God is highly opposed to it. That's why he came in the first place. Any other comments or observations? Oh, good. We got, we're only about one minute over, but any observations or thoughts? Thank you for the comments you did make. Thank you, Bonnie, for your... Oh, I think she already stepped down. Maybe she got mad at me. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, um, but again, I, uh, but I think it's... it's uh, fairly clear that God does use the, these things and uh, urge people to repent. And then what happens here, this, this is the sixth trumpet. But now just like the sixth seal, there's an interlude. Chapter 7 was the interlude, uh, and it basically answered the question, what's going to happen to God's people because of all these things happen? He says, well, I'm going to, they're sealed, they're going to be okay, I'm going to mark them, they're going to be safe before you do all these judgments. Now at the end of chap- uh, uh, the sixth trumpet, it stops again. Chapters 10 and 11 through verse 14 is this big interlude again. Something else is going to happen. Then 11 verse 15 it says, and now the seventh trumpet sounds. So this is going to be a big interlude, chapter 10 and half of 11 as well. So he kind of follows a pattern just like what he did before. So any thoughts? Thanks for being here. And hopefully if all goes well, we will be downstairs next time, which I much prefer. All right. Thanks again for your attention. Yes, sir. 
I just recently started reading the Old Testament. Yeah. I never have read it all the way through. Uh-huh. And I was doing it on the uh, one-year Bible, but then yeah. I was talking to Judy, and she said she doesn't read it like that. She goes ahead and reads the whole thing. Yeah. So I've been recently reading in, in the Old Testament. Yeah. And then where am I at right now? I'm on, uh, Samuel? First Samuel. Yeah. Oh, wow. But what I'm perplexed by is the fact that he did wipe out a lot of people. He did. And he didn't hesitate. Yeah, right. There, there were times that he did not. You're right. I mean, Joshua and Caleb wiped out 31 kings, men and people. Men, women, children, babies. Animals, animals, everything. They did. But now, was it because, I mean, we won't know until we stand for him and ask him. Yeah. Did he give them plenty of time before he went ahead and took them out? Well, let me at least just, just make, make one other observation. This is something that someone else has said, said or that I heard them say. Not everybody who died was guilty of all those things either. I'm sure there are a lot of innocent people. Well, yeah. just like just like yeah. well, just like the flood, there are probably a lot of real good grandmas, mm-hmm. a lot of good babies. They were they were guilty of anything, right. but they lost their life. Yeah. They, they still did. Um, but that's yeah. thank you. Stay on those steps.